Our scripture reading, if you'd like to follow along too, is found on page 553 of your Pew Bible. And we'd always love for you to take that Bible if you don't own one of your own. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, again, good morning, church. Uh, welcome. My name's Nathan. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the senior pastors. I haven't been here in quite a while. Uh, some of you might be aware that I've been uh, helping out at our Shawnee campus. We've had some transitions there. Uh, and if you're aware of that, some of you might also know the name Paul Brandis. Some of you, right? If, you're, if you've been around for any length of time. Uh, Paul was a pastor here three years ago. He was a part of this congregation for five years. Uh, well-loved by anybody who knows him, right? He's going to be the new uh, campus pastor at our Shawnee campus. Uh, they actually close on their house at the end of this month, and we'll be here this summer. So really excited about that. And just want to say as well, thank you for, for uh, those of you who have, have prayed for this Shawnee campus and uh, have just been so encouraged by uh, so many across Christ community, uh, and just even the ways in which all of our, all of our church has had to pitch in during this time. In fact, Bill is He's literally preaching there right now uh, at our Shawnee campus. And so we kind of swapped places. They're a week behind, so he could start the Ecclesiastes series just as he did last week here uh, and is doing that. But it's a joy of being uh, one church in multiple locations, that we get to care for one another, uh, love one another, uh, and do that. But that means you're also, you know, stuck with me today. So let me, uh, uh, let me pray. You heard the scripture read. Um, if you want to know, basically the sermon is everything's a disappointment and then you die. So that's, that's it, basically. You can go home. Uh, that's the message. But let's pray, because we need God's help uh, with that one, don't we? Uh, let me pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful for your word, even the parts that are very difficult, both to understand or, uh, more often the case, difficult for us to receive uh, in our own cultural moment and with our own limitations of sin and brokenness and death. 
And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to each one of us. God, show us what we need from these words written so long ago so that we may be more of who you've called and created us to be. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have rescued us from our strivings and from our sin. And so I pray that you would be um, honored in the things that are spoken, but also that you would do the work of empowering us um, to live out this life. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so if only the teacher could see us today. I mean, wouldn't he be proud? I mean, or at least, at least in awe. Okay, so the teacher or, or preacher or Kohelet uh, in the Hebrew, that's sort of the, the main character of the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, I mean, it's a strange little book. It's in the wisdom section of the Old Testament. Uh, we just started this stu- study last week, so if you missed it, you might go back and listen to some of that one. Uh, we're going to be in here together for about seven weeks together. But this, this teacher, if only he could see us today, because man, he'd be amazed. Like, because people, we did it. We did it. We have accomplished what he could not have even Dreamed. Where the teacher struggled, you and I have abounded. Uh, What he brags about, essentially, you and I just accept as commonplace. We have arrived. Because when he writes about pleasure, that's kind of the main subject of of the first part here of chapter 2, he's writing about things that only a king could have, right? So that's, that's his perspective. He's writing as a king, you know, the top 0.1%, the kind of people who can travel to space or buy Twitter. Like, that's, that's who he is in his ancient world. And so he's telling his people, like, you'll never be able to experience all this stuff, all these pleasures. But I have, and I'm going to tell you about it, and I want you to take my word for it, okay? That's kind of what he's doing here. But like, for us, I mean, people, every person in this room has greater access to these kinds of things than he did. We live like kings and queens, you and I. Every one of us. You may, not, you may not feel like royalty, and certainly there's a broad spectrum of humans, even within this room, right? And yet, like if the teacher could see you now, he would be jealous. He writes as a king, one of the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world, and he would look at your life and mine and drool. Because just, like, think about his, his bucket list of pleasures. Maybe you were listening as, as Holly read it. Oh, we're going to go through them here. But this is kind of like his resume of delights. It's all on display for us. And again, in the ancient world, the original readers, they would have read all this, and it would have blown their minds, right? They would have been absolutely amazed. But for us, I mean, please, people, I can do better than him without even leaving my house, okay? Because listen to what he does. So, so he starts, he starts with laughter, we all love to laugh, right? That's a huge part of pleasure, right? But for him, like, he has, to, he has to go out and find a comedian or a storyteller and, and have that person, like, travel long distances by foot or by horse to come and stay in his house. And then you just hope that he's entertaining, right? I can watch Seinfeld anytime I want. And if I get bored, I just move to the next thing and then to the next thing and then to the next thing, right? Or, or he, mentions, he mentions wine, right? They could only have local wine. Have you had local wine, right? It's not that great. Uh, And besides, like, bourbon, craft beer, none of those had been invented yet, right? He's bragging about all the wine he gets. He mentions mentions fruit trees. 
And we, we love to eat, don't we? We all, we all love food. But like even there, he's bragging about this, but like fruit is only ripe when it, once a year, right? When it's in season. The rest of the time you have to wait. And, and you can only have the kind of fruit that grows in your region, right? Even a king can't change the, the growing seasons. You and I, like you walk into Aldi, and you have more access, more variety than the greatest of the ancient kings of the world. Like your pantry would put his table to shame. We have that kind of access. He goes from there to the, like gardens, parks, lakes, flowers, like natural beauty, all these kinds of things. And the reality is you and I, we can visit, we can visit any park in the world. City parks, state parks, national parks, like beaches, waterfalls mountains, like you name it. We have access to all of that. Like, come on, teacher, up your game. And he says singers, both men and women. Like, again, you have to locate yourself for a moment in the ancient world because it's like, oh, that's cool. But like, the reality is, in the ancient world, if you wanted music, somebody had to make it for you. Like, that was it. I mean, think, think of the drought of music in your life. Like, somebody actually had to make it for you in that moment, and you and I, we could listen to anything. The very best artists, dead or alive, any genre, any time period in history, any time we want. And then he ends with concubines. Gets weird, right? So essentially limitless sex is what he's pointing out. But even even that for him, like, it's a lot of trouble, right? To have all those essentially slaves living in his house and they can get, they can get pregnant, they can rebel, like they can do all this stuff. And listen, listen, like the, the Bible is not condoning that behavior, okay? Just, just to be clear, it's not like sex is to be between one man and one woman for life. It's certainly not condoning that. It's exploitative. But he's saying like, I've, I've tried it. And the reality is like you and I, we have our own version of this in our culture, don't we? Like we have, we have access to sexual pleasure of any kind, anytime we want, any variety, Culturally, we have almost no rules. If you want it, you can have it. You don't even have to worry about getting pregnant. And a screen can't say no, which further shields us from the disastrous consequences this has in our lives. Both, both those things are deeply exploitative, right? But we just feel better about the other. There's more distance when it's on a screen. Like people, like when it comes to pleasure, we crush this guy. Like this teacher, this, this king, he should be jealous of us. We have every pleasure he could imagine and more. We live like kings and queens, every one of us. And we're all so happy, aren't we? Turn to Ecclesiastes, if you haven't already. We're in chapter two. So, so last, last week, we began this, this study. We're calling it Life Up in Smoke, right? Because that's, that's basically the idea of Ecclesiastes. It's all just, just up in smoke. It's, it's vapor, right? Life Up in Smoke. And, and Ecclesiastes, right? If you were here, it's, a, it's an odd book. It's, it's not very long, but it's pretty dark, right? And the teacher or preacher, uh, again, Kohelet uh, in the Hebrew, that's almost easier to call him that because it's hard to exactly translate who he is. But he's like a character in the book, and some believe that it's King Solomon or, or somebody like imagining what it was like to be King Solomon. Again, he's more of a character uh, in the book than, than the author, if that makes sense. 
Um, so he's kind of, kind of a character. Uh, either, either like Solomon or Solomonic or some sort of king, right? That's kind of the, the, the idea. Uh, but it's him in his old age. I mean, if we're completely honest, it's like a grumpy old man looking back on his life and, and just trying to wrestle with the enigma of life. Like there's just so much that's just mysterious about the human existence, even now, right? Thousands of years later and ultimately how disappointing life is. And, and truly, like, that's, that's the message of this book in some ways, right? Life is disappointing, and then you die. Unless. And we'll get to that unless eventually, but it's going to take us a while. Uh, but, like, this phrase that he uses, life under the sun, like, this comes up over and over again uh, in Ecclesiastes, and which is kind of, uh, like, a common thread there, and essentially it means life apart from God. And that, that's really what he's, what he's getting at with, with these, you know, these really depressing moments. He's like, he's saying that everything, no matter how great it is, even the very best things, if it's just purely under the sun, if it's purely in a universe without God, then it's hevel, is the, is the word he used. Again, that's, that's the Hebrew word, hevel. It's another hard one to translate in Ecclesiastes. Some of our translations have vanity, others have meaningless, but, it, but literally it just means vapor or smoke. It's like this, it's the stuff you try to grab onto. This is what life is. You try to grab it, but it's just, you can't. Like, it escapes your, your fingers. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. You can't, you can't put it in a box. You can't control it. It's just there, and it's gone. But everything in a world without God is hevel. Smoke and mirrors, vanity and empty, Meaningless. And so what he's going to do throughout Ecclesiastes is he's going to point out these different examples. So we'll talk about work and wealth, even justice, youth. Points out all these things. I've tried it. It's meaningless. It's hevel. And he starts his quest for meaning where many of us, I think, begin, and frankly, where many of us live our lives. Like we camp out right here. He begins with pleasure. Because pleasure promises. That's, that's the first thing. First thing to take away today. Pleasure promises. You know it, I know it, right? The teacher knows it. And under the sun, again, in a world separate from God, pleasure feels like everything, doesn't it? Which is why we, we invest so much time in it. We, we work to, have, to achieve it, right? We, we work hard so we can buy the next thing or go on the next trip or have the, the great weekend or retirement. Like everything is, is building. We, we want so much in our lives for, for pleasure. And so, so he says in chapter two, verse one, as he begins this section, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Treat yourself, right? But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? And then just to make sure we're listening, right, he goes through this, this long list of, of pleasures, of delights, like these five senses. We already kind of walked through them. It's wine and beauty and food and wealth and music and sex, like all, all the things that we gravitate towards that he searched far and wide and tried everything till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. This is, this is kind of how he talks. We're going to get to know this character uh, over these next few weeks, but this is kind of his mode, right? Uh, basically, he's like, we have short, miserable lives. 
uh, enjoy what you can, and then you die. That's, that's what he's, that he's saying. That's life under the sun. That's what he's saying. Which, by the way, this is not a coffin up here. For those of you who are like, is this some elaborate sermon illustration? We have a coffin in front. It is not a coffin, just to be clear. It's a baptistry. Uh, you can check later. There's water, not a dead body. Um, just, to, just to be entirely clear. We have a baptism service later on today. Um, just wanted to make sure that was clear. Uh, but that's, that's, again, that's what he's saying. Like, a, life is miserable, and then you die. So you might as well grab as much as you can. And so this, this is the experiment that every one of us is living, right? Under the sun, which, you know, essentially, like, that's, that's what we've been doing as a, as a culture, right? We've, we've, we've pushed God to the side so much where we've said, no, we, we purely live under the sun. There is nothing more. We've essentially given up on God as a reference point. And so pleasure is it. And again, we're crushing it. We're kings, we're kings would rule. And in the midst of this, though, life under the sun, without God as a reference point for meaning in our world, the best we can come up with as a solution to our dissatisfaction is pleasure. Because pleasure makes really big promises, doesn't it? Like it it distracts us long enough to forget for a moment how much our lives are smoke, right? And so even just, for example, at the end of a long day, right, after our, our toil and exhaustion, maybe you get to the weekend, and what, what do we do? Like, we don't, we don't reach for a relationship, for self-reflection or self-improvement. We reach for a cold beer, a bowl of ice cream, and a couple hours of Netflix. Like, did, did you know that you can actually now... Uh, binge watch Netflix at two times speed? Like they just added this feature? <laughs> I'm not making this up. You can check, check me on that. Like that is all you need to know about humans right there. Like that's, that's our story right there is we can binge watch Netflix at two times speed. We actually have to cram our pleasure like normal speed, which actually ruins it, right? If you're watching it two times speed, it doesn't make it, like you get less pleasure out of it, but we have to, we have to, like we're such gluttons for it. There's too much to watch, too much distraction, too much pleasure. Or maybe, maybe that's not, maybe that's not your thing, but, but, but have you ever been like depressed at a buffet because you got full? And you're like, why did I even come to this place? And then you just like keep shoving it down. It's not good anymore. Like you feel uncomfortable. You feel like you're going to throw up, but you keep doing it. And don't look at me like it's only me. Like you've done that, right? Or a couple, a couple months ago, our family together, um, my wife Kelly and we have uh, two kids, David and Eden. D- David's 15, Eden's 13. Uh, we're sitting at this, like a pretty fancy dinner, something we wouldn't normally do. We're having this incredible meal together. Do you want to know what we talked about? I'm not making this up. We literally talked about what we were going to eat the next day. Like that was, that was a major subject in our conversation. Or, or like another example for me, like I don't think I've ever gone on a vacation where, where I'm not simultaneously planning the next vacation, right? Because I'm, I'm thinking about what's next? What's the next thing? And, and for others of us, it's, you, you know, you're, you're, you're buying something, thinking about the next thing you got to buy, right? You're listening to a song, wondering which one's going to come up next. You're watching a show, and you got to hurry up to get through to the next one, or, or even like making love, right? And thinking about the next climax. Because for a second there, in a moment of pleasure, you forget how short and miserable your pathetic little life is. Some of you are like, when is Bill coming back? Um, (laughs) Thanks for coming to church, everybody. Uh, Join us next week for more. 
uh, of Ecclesiastes. But like, I know that's, that's heavy, like that's dark, but that's, that's what Ecclesiastes is saying. Our short, pathetic, miserable little lives that we try to grab onto these things and then we die. If it's under the sun, people were in big trouble. But we go after it again and again because pleasure promises. It promises relief. Redemption, even. Love, intimacy, hope, and salvation, or at the very least, distraction. And we believe it again and again. We go back over and over and over again. We know it's not going to sat. Like, I've had the conversations, like, this is not going to make me happy, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? Because it's going to make me forget for a moment how frail I am. And we think, maybe this time, But it's all just hevel, smoke. And pleasure falls short. That's the second thing. Pleasure promises and pleasure falls short. Pleasure makes really big promises that it cannot deliver because it cannot ultimately silence the voices within you that w- make you wonder if there's anything worth living for. It can, it can quiet them for a little bit. It can distract you from them but it can't, quiet, it can't silence them. And yet even, even so, even so, we're like, well, okay, it didn't work for the teacher, but I'm, maybe it'll work for me, right? And we think, like, I'm really gonna try. I'm really gonna invest in pleasure, and that's gonna make my life meaningful. But is anybody here actually satisfied? We've done the experiment. And yet, over and over again, we think, this time it'll, it'll make me happy. This time it'll be enough. And so in verse 10, verse 10, he says, this is kind of his summary statement, right? He says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Like, that's, that's our motto, isn't it? Isn't that in the Constitution or something, right? I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And again, I I think we know it, right? Like you and I, again, we, we have access to pleasure that would make a king fall to his knees. And yet, as a people, we've never been more depressed, more anxious, more lonely. I mean, even just as, as an example, have you, have you watched the, the studies continuing to go out around the deaths of despair? Are you familiar with that term, deaths of despair? So these, these are considered uh, drug overdoses, alcohol-related deaths, uh, and suicide. Deaths of despair. People have just given up, right? Who've given their lives to something else to make them feel better. In the last two decades in our culture, they've increased, depending on your age, anywhere between 56% and 387% in 20 years. Just this past week, the New York Times again highlighted the shocking increase in, in drug-related deaths. This is, this is especially skyrocketing over the last five years. It's, it's about doubled in our country in five years. And then you add obesity, heart disease, and we are literally pleasuring ourselves to death. And I don't, I don't know if it's just me or I, I've been maybe just like studying Ecclesiastes a little bit too long, um, or maybe it's just my personality. Uh, you can ask my sister, uh, which it is. Uh, but like, I'm not making this up. My son, again, he's 15. 
uh, he was talking to me just this week, and he said, we were talking about something he was looking forward to that we were going to experience as a family. And he said, Dad, I hope it's not disappointing. And without thinking, like the words that just came out of my mouth were, oh, David, everything's disappointing. (laughs) Parent of the year, right here. I actually, I was writing this message and I texted my wife at one point and said something to the effect of, like, when it comes to talking about how disappointing life is, I'm a natural. So I get it. This is a little bit my jam, Ecclesiastes. But do you see when you, when you press into what the teacher's saying, you see how he connects pleasure with toil? Which is not typically what we do, right? Pleasure is pleasure, right? I want pleasure. But he actually connects it to toil, that, that there, there's something about pleasure where when we give our lives to it, it actually becomes toil, drudgery. There, there's two ways that it becomes toil. One is you, you, you invest all your life in it. Like you work so hard every day simply to have a better dinner, right? A better car, a better vacation, right? You, you invest all of that time and energy just so you can retire and live it up, right? You do that or... It can also become a toy because you always need more with pleasure. It's never, it's never enough. It's never done. You're always thinking about the next, the next thing. Dinner last night was great, but what are we going to do next week, right? That vacation was really fun, but next year we've got we've to top that. The next, the next car, the next house, the next conquest. Which, that's why we watch shows at two times speed, right? There's, there's always a next one that's got to be better. And this, is, this is why experts, and not just Christian experts, but all kinds of experts right now, are writing about this because it's such a fascinating area of sociology and psychology. But they're, they're talking about how sexual satisfaction is actually in an immense decline in our culture and really worldwide in, in, in many ways. Um, that, that pornography is literally ruining sex for people because you, you always have to up the stimulation, Right? It has to be more erotic, even, even to the points of, of becoming violent to a- accomplish the same goal. It's actually ruining intimacy. And we all know, like, intimacy is better than sex, right, people? But it's robbing us of it. And addicts, addicts know this better than anyone. I mean, if you're an addict here today, we're glad, really glad you're here. Right? This, hopefully this is a place of recovery for you. Or, or maybe you have an addict in your, in your family or friends. Addicts know this better than anybody because you, you, you always have to have more. You know, the same bit of alcohol doesn't have the same effect anymore. The same drugs, the same pornography. You always have to have, you, you have to increase the dose while at the same time receiving less and less satisfaction from it. It doesn't make you as happy as it used to, right? And culturally, we're beginning to recognize this. It's so interesting because we're, we're in this place culturally where on the one hand, we're obsessed with pleasure, Right? But on the other hand, we're we're almost to the point of like despair and just giving up on it, or or at least growing disillusioned. In fact, there was an article in The Atlantic a few years ago, and other other publications have attested to this, that actually says that we, as a culture, we're in a sex recession. Like people are having less and less and less and less sex. Which is crazy, if you think about it, because we don't have any rules anymore, right? But it's because it's just, it's not working. It's too much work. We're tired of trying. It doesn't pay out like we thought it would. And so we're in this spot where our world doesn't know what to do. Do we keep searching for the next thing or do we just give up in despair? And even, even as Christians, we're tempted to say, well, pleasure, it must be bad, right? Like, because we see, we see the heartache around it. I need to reject it. I've got to avoid it. That's, that's not the answer either. Because pleasure actually points. That's the third thing. Pleasure 
points. Now, if it's, an, if it's an end in itself, it's a dead end. And that's essentially what we've made it. Pleasure is the goal. If pleasure is your goal, you will not have pleasure, right? You will have disappointment and heartache. Like, you won't, you won't be happy. It's, it's just a cul-de-sac of, of empty promises. But if we see it not as an end, but instead as a sign, as something that, that's pointing to something greater, that actually changes everything. Changes our dependence on it and changes our, our enjoyment of it. Because you've got to ask yourself, like, why are we so dissatisfied all the time? Like, we have everything. We live like kings and queens. Why are we so miserable? Well, ultimately, it's because we were never meant to live such limited lives in love with such broken desires, right? In fact, the, the teacher alludes to this later on when we get to chapter 3. Look what he says here. This is what the teacher says. He says, God has set eternity in the human heart. He's put eternity in your being, which is another way of saying that your heart is just too big to be satisfied with things so small, that you cannot, you cannot fill the infinite with finite and think it's going to satisfy you, right? Like, of course, of course it doesn't satisfy. We were made for so much more. We're, we're supposed to be disappointed because our world is broken and so are we. C.S. Lewis brilliant scholar, uh, an atheist who became a Christian. He understood this so well, writes a lot about pleasure and joy and our, our quest for it. Listen to what he says here. He says, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. In other words, they're a sign. They're pointing to something more. And the country that we long for, right, to use Lewis's language, the, the, the thing that we're craving is, is our home, which is a garden. It's Eden, right? It's, it's not meant to be in this, this broken world and these broken bodies and these broken desires that we have. We, we long for pleasure. That longing is good. That's part of how we're created to be. We long for pleasure because we were created for the pleasures of Eden in a world where God dwelled with us in intimacy and love right there with us. And the reason we're not satisfied, the reason we're never satisfied is because we don't live there anymore. And, and scholars uh, even, even point out here all the language uh, and imagery of Eden. There's a lot of Edenic sort of language in, in Ecclesiastes chapter two, in this teacher's rant, Right? The different thing, like the garden, the trees, the pools, the fruit, whatever his eyes desired, all of that is hearkening back to a garden. And essentially what the teacher's trying to do is build a garden without God, which, I mean, that's, that's what we've done, right? We've tried to have Eden without God. We've tried to have God's kingdom without him as our king, right? But without God, we cannot fill our hearts cannot ultimately bring us the satisfaction we crave. Because pleasure was actually God's idea. We forget that sometimes, right? Because we have some taboos around it or, or, or we think, well, because God had, like, has rules around some of these pleasures, he must be kind of a killjoy. But the reality, like, it was God's idea. He turned the water into wine. Think about that. That's his first miracle. Jesus did that. He, he gave bread from heaven. He invented the redwood tree, right? And sunsets. Sex was his idea. 
But none of these things were meant to be experienced in a world purely under the sun, without any reference to him as our maker, our creator, the one for whom our hearts cry out in longing, for he is meant to be our greatest pleasure. In fact, the psalmist declares in chapter 16, verse 11, praising out to God, he says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what we long for. And everything else is meant to push us, to point us to this great, wonderful thing, our God and the home that he had made for us. And if, if that's true, what do, we, what do we do with it? What do we do with pleasure so that it doesn't get the best of us, right? Um, or, or lead us to despair? Well, we have to put pleasure in its place. Put pleasure in its place. And there are three, three ways in particular that I want to mention that do that. I'll be, I'll be quick on this. But the first, first is the hardest. The other two are a little easier. But the first is to fast. Like, just, just say no once in a while which, I mean, some of you are just like, I can do that? I don't have to obey my appetites? I'm not a slave to my desires? No, actually, you're not. You're not. You can say no. Like, people, we are, we are gluttons, and it is literally killing us. And one of the best ways to put pleasure in its place is just to say no from time to time, to realize that you're, you're, you are actually in control of your appetites, not the other way around. You're not a slave to them. And so fasting, meaning skipping a meal, right? Or a couple of meals, or a day of meals, or a couple days of meals, right? You got to figure out how to do that. Start small if you've never done this before. But it reminds you who's in charge. It reminds you that you're not a slave to your appetites. And it's not, like, you really need to eat. But if you could say no to food, you could say no to anything, right? Like, you don't have to give in to those things. And it reminds us not only that we have some say in our desires, it also reminds us where our real satisfaction is. Because when we fast, it forces us to feast on God, forces us to remember that he is our sustenance and our life. This is a discipline that we're focusing on right now in the formed life. So if you have that journal or would like one, we have them in the back. You can also sign up online. This is the discipline we're going to do together as a church, practice together uh, all throughout this series because it's, in my opinion, it is, it is the best way uh, to put pleasure in its place. You have, to, you have to fast. You have to do it. Second. Second is the exact opposite. You have to feast. You have to delight. You have to celebrate. Because if, if you think for a moment that the Christian life is meant to be one of complete asceticism, right, where you deny every sort of moment of pleasure or joy, I'll think that's, that is not the God we follow, right? Instead, we recognize them as, as gifts. And at, when we recognize them as such, like when we allow them to point to our ultimate satisfaction that we have in God, we can enjoy them as acts of worship, the reality is, like, instead of delighting in these things, savoring them, like, with gratitude and joy, we consume, we take, we hoard, we exploit others to get them. Like, we're, we're gluttons for these things. Instead of using them as worship to God, we end up worshiping them instead of God. So the, but the teacher, again, in that section that I read in chapter 3, let me read a little bit more of it. He said, he has made everything beautiful in its time, he has also set eternity in the human heart. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. 
If you know that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, well, that comes out a few times in Ecclesiastes. That's, this is where it comes from. But it's okay to eat, drink, and be merry when you do it in reference to the creator, right? The one who, who made you. So an example of this in our family is we, uh, we celebrate Sabbath together as a family every week, um, almost every week. And for us, that's uh, 5.30 on Friday until 5.30 on Saturday. It doesn't really work out on the Sunday thing. It's kind of a busy day. Um, but we do it Friday night to Saturday. And we, we almost always start our Sabbath. It's a dumb liturgy, but our kids love it. They've gotten into it is we, we toast to God. We'll, we'll, we'll take turns uh, saying something we're grateful for, like something that we've delighted in that week or that day, and, and basically we're cheersing God, saying thank you. And then we, we feast together, we laugh together, we enjoy one another, we enjoy God together and all of his gifts. Like it's okay to eat, drink, and be merry as an act of worship to our creator. For all pleasure, enjoy it as he designs, right? In the, in the ways in which he's designed it to be, right? Not outside of his bounds. It's meant to be done in worship to him as a way of saying thank you to the ultimate giver of all good things. And when we learn to do these two practices, both the fasting and the feasting, right? Then we can rest. That's, that's the last one here. Like instead of this constant searching, craving, this endless, this next thing I'm going to buy, right? The next music I'm going to find, the next show I'm going to fall in love with, whatever it is, right? Instead of constantly craving, we can begin to actually rest in our creator. Because the reality is, and this is so beautiful, people, the, the, the end of our story is not a boring life of asceticism or, and denial, nor is it like self-centered gluttony. Like the image we're given of the end is of a wedding feast, celebration with food and drink and great delights but it's not it's not apart from God right it's not under the sun like that he is the groom we're the bride that we're we're enter we are allowed to enter into this this intimate relationship with him with the God who who made us and who died to rescue us from our abuses because we do abuse these things and our endless cravings but who also rose again to give us eternal pleasures forevermore. You know, I'm convinced one of the reasons I become a glutton in these moments is because I think I've got 80 years to cram it all in. I've got to do it all. I've got to see it all. I've got to experience it all because after that, it's over, right? How many of us, even as Christians, we live like that? The reality is that's, we're just getting warmed up. God has eternal pleasures for us that we will never get tired of, that will never disappoint because he will be there with us. And if that's true, then we can stop our endless strivings. We can rest. Take a deep breath, knowing you don't need the next thing, right? And enjoy the gifts that he's given. We can find actual contentment. Instead of living for pleasure, and if you live for pleasure, you'll never have it. Instead of living for pleasure, we can find and receive great joy. Let's pray. Father, we need your help. Because even as I say these words, I know my own tendency is to run back into these same things to give me life. God, I, I pray that instead you would help each one of us enjoy them, 
your gifts in their appropriate way, in their appropriate place, at their appropriate time, but to do it in gratitude to you, ultimately pointing to you that we can delight in these things, but these things don't have to be our gods. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in you and the hope that we have eternity to enjoy you and your gifts. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would empower us. Show us how. In Jesus' name, amen.